Good morning. Uh, Our reading today comes from Romans uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Last week we began chapter 2, where Paul begins to make it plain that all people, regardless of background or their upbringing, will be judged by God and will be rewarded according to their works. Romans 2, 6 to 11, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. But it continues this morning. Paul seemed to realize that he was going to have to do a lot more to convince God's chosen people that they too will be subject to judgment. And so in verses 12 to 16, he addresses the question of whether or not possession of the law guarantees salvation. Now, possession of the law was a great point of distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew possessed the law of God, while the Gentiles did not. Today, we think of Judaism as something more of an ethnicity rather than a religion, but this is to identify membership in the people of God quite differently than how it is differentiated in the ancient church, in ancient Israel, and in the Bible. Many famous Israelites were not biological descendants of Abraham and Jacob. Perhaps most notable was Caleb the Kenizzite, who uh, went as a spy into the Canaanite land with Joshua. He was a Kenizzite, but became a full member and a landowner within the, li- uh, within the tribe of Judah. And his younger brother, Othniel, a Kenizzite, was the first named among the judges. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a Midianite, and Moses' wife and children were Midianite. And yet, God called Moses to circumcise his sons as Israelites. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. And Uriah and possibly Bathsheba were Hittites. Each of these were counted among the Israelite family, and each of the women are listed in the ancestry of the Jewish Messiah, Christ Jesus. And so there's not just those who are biologically Israelite, those who are sons of Jacob, but also those who had joined them. In contrast, there were many who were biological descendants of Israel, but were not counted among them. 
Not the least is Achan, who was cast out of Israel for his rebellion against God. But the Samaritan people group were not accepted by the Jews as part of the Israelite community because their ancestors had turned from the worship of the one true God. They had settled in Samaria and intermarried there with various other nations. And so it should not surprise us then that Jesus insisted a bloodline relation to Abraham was insufficient for membership among the people of God. When he rebuked those who claimed such a connection despite their rebellion against God, John 8, 37 to 39, and we'll read what he says at the end in verse 44. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. And then we'll skip to the end. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. See how he sets that up? I do what I see my father doing. You do what your father does. Your father is the devil. Several passages in the New Testament then speak of what it means to be a true Jew, including the end of this second chapter in Romans, which we'll hopefully look at in the future. The point is that the great demarcation between Jew and Gentile, the great divider from the mindset of the original audience, was not bloodline, not only birth, but possession of God's law. And so Paul's message then here in verses 12 to 16 is that the Jews, according to the flesh, cannot appeal to mere possession of the law or Torah as a saving advantage. Vindication on the last day, 2 Corinthians 5.10, when all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so as to receive what is due for what they have done will not come from gathering around the Word of God. It will not come from attending synagogue or church to hear it and to read it. It will not come from possessing it. But the final justification comes from keeping God's law. All those who violate God's commands will perish on the final day. Romans 2, 12 to 13 then For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So this verse begins with four. It's linked back to verse 11 to explain God's impartiality. That is that he shows no favoritism. As Peter preached to Cornelius' Gentile household in Acts 10, 34-35, he spoke, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So God does not show favoritism or partiality based on a person's social status, ethnicity, gender, or any other external factor. Possession 
than of God's covenant law, as we'll see later in the chapter, also the sign of the covenant, circumcision, were what Paul's audience considered to be the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. There's these two primary things. The Jews have the law at which they take a sign in their body. Uh, the males are circumcised. And this is what Paul's audience continue, or considers to be the separation between Jew and Gentile. Not strictly bloodline, but who have the law and who are circumcised. And so Paul's message in Romans is designed to destroy that distinction in the church. In fact, many of the New Testament books have, uh, take great pains to destroy the dividing wall of distinction between Jew and Gentile so that there is one people of God. The Jewish people heard the law recited on all kinds of sacred occasions. The scrolls of the Old Testament were on display in the synagogue and regularly read aloud. And most concluded then that because they possessed these documents, which were part of the covenant of God that he had made with them, that there was a guarantee then to entrance into the kingdom of God. But instead of the law exempting Jews from judgment as they believe, the message here is that possession of the law will only mean that they will be judged by it. Possession of the law does not bring righteousness. To be declared righteous, one must obey the law. And we know from both verses 13 and from verses 6 to 10, which we looked at last week, that Paul teaches that those who actually do good works will be declared righteous and saved on the day of judgment. So Paul here uses, for the first time, a verb which will be used a total of 15 occasions in Romans, declared righteous, or as it is translated here in our ESV, justified. This is an important word to Romans, one on which there is much debate, one on which people have many different views. Many of the instances, most of the instances of Paul's use of this verb relate to those who are justified by faith, that is, those who are declared to be righteous by God on the basis of the redemption provided through His Son and because of their faith in Him. Justification by faith alone, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so in Romans 3.20, the apostle emphasizes this initial justification of sinners, which is not by works. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So then, we seem to have a statement here that runs contrary to that message where Paul says that it is the doers of the law who will be justified. This is verbatim what Scripture says. It is the doers of the law who will be justified. And so herein lies much of the confusion about the message of Romans. So if you're wondering, Josh, why did we pick only five verses this week instead of like the usual 17 to 20 that we normally... This is why. This is an important word which uh, is misunderstood as people try to take it the same way every time. In our text this morning, Paul employs the future tense of declared righteous, translated in English, will be justified. 
communicating that this is a future justification which he has in mind. And so in its context in Romans, this cannot imply that there are some who are doers of the law in any sense that they can fulfill God's law and so earn God's justification. This would be completely contrary to what Paul teaches throughout the rest of Romans. But rather Paul is thinking of that beginning of grateful obedience to be found in those who believe in Christ, which though very weak and faltering and in no way deserving of God's favor, is, as an expression of humble trust in God, well-pleasing in his sight. So we see that Paul uses the term justification in two senses, with two different tenses, a here and now justification by faith, an alien righteousness applied to wicked sinners through the obedience of Christ, and that gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, will produce the fruit of repentance. Grateful and loving obedience to God, by which all believers in the grace alone gospel will receive, on the last day, the final verdict of justified which was declared by God over them already through faith. So there's an initial justification by faith alone, by God's grace alone, but the justification that Paul speaks of on the final day is a justification that God says, look, I was right to call them right. I was right all along to say that they would be righteous. God doesn't just call someone righteous and then pretend for the rest of eternity that he's made them righteous. God calls them righteous, and what God calls righteous, you know what? It's going to be righteous. And so Paul has justification in two senses in Romans. And this solves a lot of the confusion people have about why it seems to be contradictory. There is a justification, a now justification, by faith in Christ. When we entrust ourselves to him and believe what he says over us, we are called by God righteous now. Declared righteous Not of our own doing, nothing that we've done to earn God's favor, nothing we've done of self-promotion, but God, through looking at the obedience of Jesus and the blood shed over us, say, I call that one righteous. But Paul also speaks of a future justification, a justification when we stand before the throne of God and he says, well done, good and faithful service, servant, or depart from me, I did not know you. Coming back to the main point here, though, Paul insists that possession of the law is insufficient. It was not saving the Jews, and therefore constitutes no advantage over the Gentiles. But but today, we don't normally think that merely possessing a Bible conveys salvation. We don't think that if we have a Bible at our house that we are saved. And so, we don't hold this same misconception that Paul's tackling here. But what... What misconceptions do we hold? Paul here says that it is the one who obeys who will be justified. Do we have misconceptions believing that merely having and hearing the law would would guarantee salvation? That, That sounds ridiculous to us, but what about us? Do we have similar beliefs? Do we think that because we attend a church that preaches the word, we have it? Does that check the boxes for God so that he will be right when he judges us righteous? Does a prayer asking God to forgive our sins guarantee salvation? 
Does receiving Jesus guarantee it? Our baptism, our confirmation? Paul might have responded to professing evangelical Christians this morning by saying, it is not those who invite Jesus to be their Lord and Savior who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who live with Jesus as their Lord and Savior who will be declared righteous. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, Paul has already spoken at length of God's revelation in creation, Romans 1.20, that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And this revelation, it says, also takes place within human beings. It's not just in creation, but in Romans 1.21, they knew God. And Romans 1.19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, Paul also includes an appeal to the Greco-Roman notion of conscience, which was already at this time widely used within Jewish writings to speak of a moral law of nature which is universally known among humanity. Now, Paul chooses his words very carefully here. He isn't saying that the Gentiles, who do not have the law, are in fact keeping the law. He says that they do some of the things required by the law. That is quite different from saying that they keep the law perfectly. Paul has already made it abundantly clear that the in the first chapter, that all pagans are under the judgment of God, and that he he will make this even more clear in the third chapter. But even pagans, who have never even heard of the Old Testament before, do sometimes display acts of virtue. We find pagans with enough human morality to take care of their children and to refrain from stealing. We know of atheists who are able to be faithful to their spouse and get to work on time. They don't obey the whole of the law, for they don't love God with all their hearts and all their minds and all their souls. But this partial obedience reveals that there's a certain sense in which the law is written on their hearts. This should not be confused with God's promise in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Because the main point in this context is that although the Gentiles know the law in their hearts, they are condemned since they don't keep it perfectly. In Jeremiah, the promise is that the law would be fulfilled as God writes it on their hearts in a saving work. It continues, I will be their God. And they shall be my people. So also, verse 14, saying that they are a law to themselves, would be a very strange way, indeed, of describing Christians who have had their hearts changed. They would not be a law to themselves. God would be their law. And so this directs attention to what is inscribed in their nature. That is a natural law common to humanity. 
Every human has some moral sense, some way by which they are able to distinguish right from wrong. Even the secular philosopher Immanuel Kant went to great pains to prove this point, that there is a sense of rightness in the breast of every human being. We all generally know when we do something wrong, and we know how things should go, and especially when it is we who have been mistreated, then we certainly know when something is wrong. Human behavioral patterns, no matter how, many, how primitive the culture, no matter how remote, they all bear witness to the fact that man is born with some sense of moral awareness. We all have some built-in understanding of what is right and what is wrong. God gives us that innate and inward knowledge of morality. Nevertheless, apart from Christ, the natural law of conscience innate in human beings functions just like the external law of Moses. Just as the law of the Old Testament identifies sin but does not transform people to be righteous, so also the natural law condemns us. It tells us what's right and wrong, but it gives us no power to do what is right. And so it functions in exactly the same way. And this is what Paul's getting at. The natural law is written on the hearts of people from every nation, yet it is not saving them through that knowledge, but is instead condemning them. And so Paul introduces this in order to show the Jews that merely hearing the law is of no advantage. It doesn't matter that you've heard a sermon this morning. God will not save you because you attended church. It is what we do with what God teaches us. The natural law is written on the hearts of people, but it does not save them. Instead, they know what is right and are therefore condemned. So also with the Jews. They have the law. That's good. We should have the law. We should seek to know God's will. Our conscience is not enough, but we need the very word of God. But that is of no saving advantage. Both Jew and Gentile will be judged for their failure to obey the good commands of God. Picking up again, repeating verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, why does Paul refer to it as my gospel when previously he has called it the gospel of God. This brings us to, to the main points that Paul is, is weaving into this all the way through Romans. Remember, Paul had felt it necessary to defend his gospel against critics who were misrepresenting it as diminishing the importance of good works. You know, even, even today, when someone believes in the, the sovereign work of God in salvation, that monergistic or one force which saves, that we don't participate in saving ourselves, oftentimes the criticism will come, well, then people will just do whatever they want and just wait for God to, to do what He's going to do. Then people won't strive. Then people won't really work hard to earn their salvation. And the same attack was coming against the gospel as Paul preached it. There were those who were saying that it uh, basically encouraged people to sin. Well, if God's saving you and you're not saving yourself, 
well, then you might as well just do whatever you feel like. And so Paul's responding to this by clearly laying out the actual gospel he preaches, the gospel of God, which involves calling people to the obedience of faith. A statement made at the beginning and very end of Romans. And the main theme that is interwound throughout every statement is that God is bringing believers saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, to actual obedience. That what God declares righteous will not remain unrighteous. That's contrary to his nature as creator. He declares righteous at the beginning, and we celebrate salvation that is not of ourselves. We have not earned God's favor this morning, church. But we also look forward to a final judgment where God will be proven to be correct in what he stated. And then he will be shown to be just by the righteousness of his church. This is why Jesus is coming back, not for for some church that is is so unfaithful and divided, but he's coming back for his pure and spotless bride, the invisible church, those who truly belong to his people. Instead of promoting sin among the Gentiles, as those who were slandering him had accused him, Paul is Uh, instead preaching a gospel that explicitly acknowledges a coming judgment for all who are disobedient to God. According to the gospel that Paul preached, no one will get preferential treatment, but each will be judged according to their deeds. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-11a, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Church, have you believed a gospel which has caused you to be unconcerned about the way that you live your life? Have you believed a gospel that has caused you to just be be totally free and, and carefree in the idea of whether you will receive judgment? Know that the Bible says again and again and again through the New Testament that we must all appear before Christ's own judgment, each one to receive what he is due for his works. This will cause us to walk in the fear of the Lord. Not only will there be a final judgment, church, not only will that judgment be based on the real justice of God, but the judgment will be through Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. A faith through which we are declared righteous in Christ now, but which is also a faith that will reveal a people made righteous for God on the last day so that they will receive his commendation. Our conscience accuses and then excuses us. We, we feel bad and then we come up with excuses in our head. This is self-righteousness on display. 
when we know that we have done wrong, when we know that we are walking in a way that is not pleasing to God, our conscience is always coming up. It's our little advocate. It's our little lawyer inside of us. It says, hey, you did that thing, and you shouldn't have done that thing. And And then it also, that very same conscience actually advocates for us back. It says, but there was extenuating circumstances, and I couldn't help it, or, or there was this situation, and I'm, I kind of, I'm off, I'm off the hook. We, we kind of justify ourselves. But Christ is the great mediator for his church. We must lay down such self-justifications, confess our sin, for he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, church, we must lay aside this, this self-justification of our conscience, the conscience that first pokes us and then, and then uh, soothes our, us and says, oh, no, no, it's okay. It's, it's been a while since you sinned. Oh, no, it's okay. You don't, you don't sin too often. Oh, oh, you deserve it. You know, there, there, I may be unique, but I don't think there's ever a time that I sin where I don't lie to myself first. We have instead the great mediator, Jesus Christ, who advocates on our behalf, but whose mediation is not limited to getting us out of the punishment. But God declares us righteous, and he will make it so. And so with Paul, we can say with integrity... I am not ashamed of the gospel because this is a gospel that acknowledges the gravity of sin, acknowledges the sober reality of coming judgment, while at the same time being the power of God to both justify and sanctify all who place their faith in Christ Jesus. It is a gospel in which faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. A gospel to celebrate and revel in. A gospel that is greater than maybe what we ever believed. A gospel that promises us that God is going to complete the work he started. And a gospel not to be ashamed of. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. So many times we summarize your words and we miss parts of the good news. And even these first three chapters of Romans, which draw to our attention our desperate need for saving and show us that you will not just give someone a pass on their behavior, but that you will judge each one according to their deeds. God, may we live in fear of you. May we trust you for this transformation. You are true mediator. Forgive us for the self-justification and the self-righteousness that we walk in. Forgive us for hiding our sins. You who reveal the secret sins and will judge them on the last day. Help us to confess our sin, trusting your salvation. A salvation which begins with a declared righteous, begins with freedom from condemnation, but also results in righteousness and results in a righteous judgment from you that will also save us. 
And so, Father, we ask that you would confront us this week. If you agree with this, you're going to have to say so yourself. If you, God, we ask that you would confront us with our sin. We ask that you would convict us of sin. I pray that we would walk in the fear of the Lord, careful in the way we walk. Make it our aim to please you and to persuade others, God, that the judgment of Jesus Christ is coming. And you will not show favoritism. You will not give any a pass, but you will judge each according to their deeds. And so, Lord, do this as well. We have no power of our own, but we must strive with all of your power that you so mightily work within us. And so that you will continue to get all the glory even as you produce genuine obedience in your people. I pray this for your church. That the fruit of repentance would be evident. The fruit of the Spirit would be evident. So that we could rightly have the conviction that you have saved us. In Jesus' name we ask. Ultimately for his glory. Amen.